This is your podcast for all things refinishing. I'm Lane Ball with Zebras Before and After. Welcome to episode 192. I realized that a lot of people wanted upholstered pieces and no one was doing it anymore. It seems to be a dying mm-hmm. part. And it's so sad because there are so many gorgeous pieces of furniture that are being tossed because they need to be reupholstered. Reupholstering is another facet of furniture refinishing that you may want to consider adding to your business. Cindy with Reinvented Delaware is an experienced refinisher and reupholsterer, and she shares the tools you need and walks us through some simple steps to start your first project. Shelly with Cedar and Sage Furniture shares a tip on how to achieve incredibly straight, crisp lines when using painter's tape. This week's question of the week, what refinishing incident made you almost quit, is answered by our furniture refinishing friends, Mary with Hello Mrs. P, Joey with Recouped, Shay with All Things Made New, and Veronica with Vintage by Veronica. Stay with us, friends. We have the inspiration, fun, and community that will platform your day. I don't know about you guys, but for those of us who have never reupholstered a piece of furniture, it looks pretty intimidating. Tearing down an old piece and then trying to recover it with all of that fabric. And how do you line it up properly? And how do you make those corners look nice? Well, today we enjoy a great conversation with Cindy of Reinvented Delaware as she walks us through the stages involved in reupholstering. Cindy has been reupholstering and refinishing for years, and she provides all the encouragement and insight necessary to take on this added skill for yourself. Hi, Cindy. How have you been? Hi, Lane. I'm doing okay. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. We're kind of bracing for uh, Hurricane Ian, I believe it is, uh, that uh, is making its way up through Florida. And then I think is supposed to make its way out to the coast and then possibly back into South Carolina. So uh, I know we're not going to feel the effects that Florida is. And we're, of course, praying for those folks. But um Hopefully, have you seen any weather reports? Are you guys expected to get uh, anything from this particular hurricane? You know, and I'm not really sure about that. In the area that we live, it's it's kind of a gamble. You just never know what the storm's going to do. Is it going to go inland? Is it going to come back out? And where we are, uh, we don't get a lot of hurricane activity, but we have had some over the years. And it's, I, I think that they just have a hard time of telling what that storm's going to do. I know North Carolina has that area, the outer banks that kind of juts out a little bit and can push a storm back out into the Atlantic. So sometimes, you know, it's just kind of iffy. Yeah, it is. It really is. And each year it's like everything's unpredictable. They try to tell this is roughly how many hurricanes we could potentially see and uh, whether it's going to be a rough, rough season or not. But uh, it's always, it's a bit, um, you know, scary for those that live on the coast. And I know our producer, Alice, lives uh, on the coast in South Carolina. So they're kind of trying to prepare as best they can. But like you said, you know, it could go back out to sea and never come back on uh, on shore. So hopefully, hopefully it will do that. Uh, so, you know, speaking of Delaware, um, I think you're in, is it Milford? I am. I'm in Milford. We're just a little south of the halfway point of Delaware. Delaware is a tiny state, and I love to joke that from the top to the bottom of Delaware is about an hour and a half of driving time. We're very small. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you can, you can literally drive all over the state uh, in a day, uh, perhaps, if you wanted to do some sightseeing. Oh, definitely. Most definitely. We're, we're teeny tiny and I, I love our little state. We're tax-free shopping and that's one of the things that I love the most. 
And I just love the hometowniness of our whole state. You know, you use the, the phrase tiny state. So it's, if I'm correct, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe Rhode Island is the smallest and Delaware is the second smallest state. Is that correct? Yeah, I think you're right. I think Ro- Rhode Island is officially the smallest. They Their population, I'm sure, is much bigger than ours. Yeah. I couldn't tell you the population of Delaware. But I know that from most of our counties, we only have three counties and our two southernmost counties are more rural, if I say that word right. It's it's more countryside. Where we live, mm-hmm. I, I'm three miles from town. I have we're almost on an acre and a half of ground without many neighbors. And and a lot of Delaware is that way. The northern part of our state is Wilmington and that's almost you know side by side with Philadelphia. And that area is very concentrated, very well populated. But the area that I live in is is really country and we don't have a lot of people. So I I think that definitely land space wise, Delaware is a little bit larger than Rhode Island, but I think they might have more people than we do. Yeah. So are you from Delaware? I'm not. I'm actually a Texan. And here's my claim to fame. I was born there, lived there for six months, and I'm going to claim it. I'm a Texan. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So so just six months. Now, after the six months, did you move north? Uh, What's uh, or have you been in several different places? Several different places. My dad was uh, military. He served in Mm -hmm. the United States Air Force for years. So we did some moving around and we wound up landing at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. And this is kind of where we settled. And I, I met and married my husband almost 40 years ago. Next year will be our 40th wedding anniversary. And he is from the town of Milford, born and raised. His family is well known in our little town. And he was a police officer for 28 years in our small town. So it's very um, close knit group. And I just assumed myself into their community of Milford. And um, yeah, we raised our children here in this little town. And Yep. So I, I'm basically a Delawarean now, but I'm, I'm holding on to that six months of being a Texan. <laughs> well, that's a little bit like my wife was born in Texas. And, um, I, you know, I'm not sure exactly. I, she's pretty young, I think, when they moved back up to, to Minnesota. But um, so she's born in Texas, lived most of her life in, life in Minnesota. Her mother was from Mexico. So they would travel down from Minnesota to Mexico every Christmas and they would stay down there for a month. Can you imagine driving from Minnesota to Mexico? (laughs) And she was always, she always talks about the weather change, you know, because this was in December. So they leave cold Minnesota and end up in tropical Mexico, you know, in those warm weather down there. So yeah, that's quite a drive. There's some interesting stories about those long trips. So Delaware weather, uh, obviously we're talking about the Hurricane Ian. And for those listening, we usually record oftentimes at least a week or two out. So by the time this airs, Ian will be history and hopefully uh, very little damage and no life lost. Hopefully um, praying for that anyway. But uh, what what has your weather been like this year? Have you seen a lot of up and down with weather? Has it been pretty nice? What Give us a little bit of a general weather report. I think for us, I think our summer has been pretty typical, uh, hot and humid. We are 
we are sort of a, a peninsula. We have the Delaware Bay and the Atlantic on one side of us. And then on the other side of our peninsula that we share with the state of Maryland is the Chesapeake Bay. And that heads up. So it creates this peninsula effect. So we have a lot of moisture in our air mm-hmm. and the humidity is pretty, pretty intense in Delaware. I, I don't seem to mind it at all, but I would say that the, the heat hasn't been horrific, but I don't, I guess I don't mind heat. I, I'm not a fan of cold weather. And when the cold weather comes to our area, it's cold because of that mm-hmm. humidity. It seems really cold. Like when it gets cold, it's serious. And every few years we'll get like a heavy um, snowstorm and we're snowed in for days. But really, for the most part, we enjoy all four seasons in Delaware. They're very distinct seasons. We don't have it, it feels even like it's evenly dispersed mm-hmm. amongst the seasons. And that's one of the reasons that I love living here. Yeah, I think, you know, you're talking about humidity. I think the thing about the humidity is, even though I have to say it, it is, you know, a little bit of a drawback for the, for the area that we live in as well, because it's so humid. Uh, but it really is, is you, you, it's about getting used to it, I think, more than anything else. I think the harder part would be if you lived out west in the dry climate, you moved to the east coast to, you know, an area where it's really humid. I think it would take a while to, you know, for your body to adjust to that humidity because sometimes it's hard to breathe in when it's really high humidity in the middle of summer. Mm-hmm. I agree 100%. My sister-in-law just moved to Minnesota and she's almost in Canada. She's way, way up there. And she'll tell my husband, it's his sister, oh, it's 30 below t- today, you know, in the winter. <laughs> and he's like, you're crazy for living there. And she said, but it's different because it's not humid. He's like, I don't care. It's 30 below. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one, one or the other, right? So we've seen a lot of transition, uh, you know, with the, um, you know, go, coming out of the pandemic and how that affected people's businesses. And then, of course, with the economy uh, struggling as it is, how, how has business been for you uh, as of late? Well, our business has changed a lot. Like so many other people, you have when you own your own business, you have to be willing to flex. Like I, that's one of the most important business lessons that I've ever learned and that I've ever had to experience is to flex. During Mm -hmm. COVID, when it first happened, the vendor booth spot where we sell, where we sold most of our items, obviously had to shut down like so many. So we brought Mm -hmm. all of our things home and we took one of our spare bedrooms. All of our kids are adults, so they're grown and gone. So we have extra bedrooms. And we set up one of the extra bedrooms, just like my shop. And we held Facebook Lives and sold items that way. We delivered with the safe delivery that we were all doing back then, or porch pickup was happening mm-hmm. when pe- items were sold. But we sold a lot during during those Facebook Lives. Our shop reopened, and we put our things back in after a couple months. But what that did on our Facebook, uh, my account didn't grow a whole lot, but I have a, a fairly not not a large account by any means on Facebook, but the people that follow me are local. And mm-hmm. they started realizing, oh, I have this piece that grandma gave me and I really want to spruce it up. It's looking pretty shabby now that they're looking at it all day long and because they weren't leaving their houses. <laughs> so we went for a span of, I think I counted, it was 20 or 21 months of constant custom work. It, wow. In fact, I was 
pretty much working seven days a week during that whole period of time. And I would have a piece delivered, um, a, a one piece get picked up in the morning and another piece get delivered by someone else in the afternoon or evening. And it was like this constant rotation of custom work. It, it was nonstop. It was mm-hmm. a little overwhelming. I was really thankful for the work. Uh, and I, I learned how to schedule. <laughs> that was interesting because I had a few mishaps of having too much stuff in my small workspace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got that figured out. But yeah, that 20 or 21 months of continuous custom work during that time. So that was exciting and overwhelming all at the same time. Yeah, that's that's incredible because, um, you know, the majority of the people that we've talked to during that time actually did pretty well. I mean, they stayed pretty busy. And I think it's for the reasons that you mentioned. Now, with the custom work that you picked up, have you stepped a little bit away from that now that things have changed? Are you still doing a lot of custom work? I'm not doing a lot of custom work now, and that's a little bit because that our business has made another change even even more recently. We've made another change, and I can tell you about that. But it when when people start when they were able to go back out and shop and that kind of thing, I just naturally the custom work just slowed down. and it was it was a good uh, you know one of that silver lining kind of thing. I like doing custom work, but there's an added pressure to custom work that you don't have if you're just doing the piece for your own shop. And I don't mind the pressure, but it's a little hard having a piece, 150-year-old piece that, oh, this was passed down from my grandmother, my great-grandmother. makes you a little nervous to have it. But everyone was satisfied with the work, and I'm thankful. And it, it just seemed to, like I said, it just naturally slowed down once people were able to get out and about again. You know, I have to bring this up and sort of perusing through your IG account uh, pretty early on uh, in doing that. A recent post uh, caught my eye. You're pretty creative. I think I saw it was celery stamping or something you did with celery stalks, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, that kind of leads into another uh, change in our business. Recently, well, last year I started a YouTube channel and I, uh-huh. I also write a blog. So I should mention that at reinventeddelaware.com, I have well over 250 step-by-step tutorials of many wow. of the projects that we've done since we've been refinishing uh, furniture and uh, home decor pieces for the last six years of our, since we started our business. And I've just been writing these blog tutorials, and they're very detailed tutorials. You can find a lot of information there about different projects that we've done, from small home decor pieces to furniture painting to upholstery. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything in between. And then last year, we decided to start a YouTube channel, and it has really taken off fairly well, in in my opinion. It was a slow starting, and now that it's going, it's going along well. But that was one of the projects that I did for a YouTube channel. And we stamped pillow covers with celery. <laughs> and it was kind of reminiscent of back in the day when I was a kid. And I remember going to a vacation Bible school. And you would take a potato, cut it in half, and then carve out mm-hmm. a little design, something simple like a heart. And then you would dip mm-hmm. it in paint. And you would stamp, you know, what, whatever, construction paper, yeah. whatever. So I kind of, kind of, you know, pulled back from my younger days and decided to try this with a piece of celery. And people so far are really enjoying that simple kind of crafty, just some therapy, just some paint therapy right there. Just easy stuff. 
listeners, you're going to have to go out and check out uh, Cindy's website and, and her accounts as well because the celery stamping is really cool. It looks like a flower. It does. I had a lot of people say that it looked like a rose. Uh, when mm-hmm. I envisioned it, I had envisioned a mum. So a mum is a big flower with a whole, made up of a whole bunch of little flowers. And that's kind of what I had envisioned was a really large mum of a whole bunch of small blooms that make up one bloom. But someone on my YouTube channel said, well, it's really pretty and all, but I think it looks more like a rose. And I thought, yeah, it does kind of look like a rose. <laughs> yeah, it's really uh, very unique. So uh, what's your background, Cindy? I mean, you're doing this now. Have you always been into creative artistry, whether it's upholstery, refinishing, crafting? Tell us tell us what your background is. Well, I'll, I'm into all of the above. And I think my background, like I've thought about this, I've, I've always had some kind of creative spirit in me. I remember one of the first things, you know, you only have memories to a certain age when you're young, but one of my earliest memories, I decided I was going to plant grass in my mom's yard, in our, in our yard, in our family yard, in a bare spot. There wasn't any grass there. So my dad had trimmed the grass and there were all these grass clippings. And I thought, well, I'll just take those grass clippings and lay them down and they're just going to replant themselves. But, and I, I kind of chuckle about it. Obviously the grass didn't grow, but it, it does say something about what's going on in my crazy mind of trying something like just try Mm -hmm. it and it might work. So it started pretty young as far as that is concerned. And then I was blessed to have three older sisters. I'm the youngest of four and the sister just above me in age is six years older than I am. So when they were in high school, I was still elementary and I was that proverbial, you know, younger sister. They didn't want to be around me, but I was always trying to be around them and listening in. And I have a couple of sisters that are extremely, well, all three of my sisters that are extremely creative. One of them took sewing in high school and I just was enamored with it and watching her using sewing machine and cutting fabric and all of that. And she would buffalo me into thinking that pulling out the seams was the, was the job to have. Oh, if you got to pull, (laughs) if you got to rip out the bad seams, oh, you had the greatest job on earth. So as a nine year old, I started my sewing career with a seam ripper, ripping out the seams that my older sister had (laughs) made a mistake on thinking that I was really doing the greatest job ever. And the great thing about that is that it gave me a love for sewing, which stirred my, um, which stirred the, the love of just creating in general. And from there, of course, I took sewing all through high school. I sewed a lot of my own clothing, got married out of high school, sewed my children's clothing, uh, quilts. Uh, I've made so many quilts. In fact, I'm looking at I'm surrounded by about three quilts right now that I've made over the years and just love the whole creative process. I've always loved to decorate our home and make over things in our home. And it's just one thing. The thing about creativity, I think, if you do one thing, it typically spurs on something else. And I I love that. So I don't have to just paint furniture. I don't have to just sew a quilt. I can use those to branch off and do other creative endeavors. And it's it's pretty exciting to be able to have a job that pays me to be creative. It's a, it's a crazy world we live in. Yeah, well, to be able to do what you love 
is uh, makes a huge difference in just, you know, from one day to the next. So how long have you been refinishing furniture? Well, I would say that we've refinished furniture and um, upcycled home decor pieces just about all of our 40 years of marriage. My husband and I decided that I would be a stay-at-home mom, which changed our income level drastically, and it was just a decision that we made. And the other thing that that did for us was that it made us think about uh, how we could get the things that we needed to furnish our home. So mm-hmm. we just, between the two of us, we would, he's very good at fixing and repairs. And we don't mind finding that piece that needs repairs and, and doing the repair work. We have never minded that. I think because we've always done it, but he's very good at that. And uh, I'm, I'm the one that, uh, you know, does the finishing work. And it's pretty much been that the whole, our whole 40 years. Well, our focus today is on reupholstering or upholstering, and your work caught our eye, of course. Tell us about your experience in reupholstering. Is this a long-time hobby? Uh, I know you've been, like as you said, creativity runs through your veins, uh, but when did the actual process of upholstering, reupholstering, when did that come into your life? I, I think one of the first pieces that I ever reupholstered I was probably, I wasn't even 25 years old yet. We, we had about two kids and my father-in-law had given us a rocker that was an upholstered uh, um, deck. The deck is the part that's attached. It's the part that is underneath the cushion that you sit on. Mm-hmm. So that part of it was upholstered and then there was a separate cushion and then a separate cushion for the back on this rocker. Well, I knew that I could make the two cushions. I've been sewing since basically since I was nine years old. So the cushions were not going to be a problem. The deck part I thought would be more challenging, but I pulled it apart. And as I pulled it apart, I paid attention to how I was taking it apart. And this was before we had a camera in our pocket everywhere we went. I mean, this was 35 years ago. And I just paid attention to how I was taking the deck apart. And then I got fabric and I put put the deck back on and it turned out pretty good and of course I made the cushion. So I would say that was my first upholstery project about 35 years ago. And then when we started our business, which I say in business, this is when we started earning money doing these things, I I realized that a lot of people wanted upholstered pieces and no one was doing it anymore. It seems to be a dying mm-hmm. art. And it's so sad because there are so many gorgeous pieces of furniture that are being tossed because they need to be reupholstered because it's mm-hmm. not many people are doing it anymore. So I decided to start tackling it again. I've done several upholstery projects for our home over the years, but I've never done it for income until the last six years. And we've done quite a few pieces over the last six years for upholstery. Yeah. I love that you just, what you just highlighted because it, when you're talking about upholstery, uh, it reminds me a lot of refinishing because one of the, the key elements to refinishing is that you're saving these pieces from the landfill, yet there are so many upholstered pieces that you look at. And I think a lot of times you look at it and you go, oh, that's so dirty. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's just like, is it germ ridden? You know, I, ca- I can't <laughs> have that. But if you look beyond that and go, well, I can, I can. I can reupholster it, you know, and then it's like a, a another, it's a new piece, just like a, a refinished piece of furniture. So I, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to highlight this because, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there who have thought of re- reupholstering, 
but they're just not sure about it. They're not sure whether, you know, it's something that they can tackle. Would they have the time? Does the work involved pay off if it's going to be a resale item? So, yeah, I'd like for you, because you've done both refinishing and reupholstering, what would you say are the biggest differences between the two? Well, one of the similarities would be repair work. Like that's going to be a given when you have an upholstered piece. I would say the differences is you really do have to look beyond what you see in front of you. Like you just said, you can look at the fabric and think, oh, there's no way that's so ugly. Well, a lot of furniture people understand you can't just look at the the finish that is there in the case of a painted piece or a natural wood piece, or in my case, an upholstered piece, you can't just look at what's at the, you know, at first sight, you have to be able to look beyond what you see, just like a furniture painter needs to look beyond that ugly finish to what it could be. Someone that's going to upholster or reupholster a piece needs to look beyond the ugly fabric, the dirty fabric, and probably the stinky fabric that is there and look at what can be when you get that project done. Hi, it's Megan DeLong with Magdell Design, and this podcast is sponsored by my friends at Zebra Painting. Zebra paintbrushes are my absolute favorite and go-to because I can find one for every project that fits my needs, whether it's for my home or for furniture pieces. The specialty brushes just make it super easy to find one that fits whatever I'm working on. My go-to and my favorite brush by far is the fan brush, and that's because I can use it for round edges on a piece, but it also has really great coverage for the flat surfaces. And the little corner parts of the brush too work really well to get into the nooks and crannies. So I find it to be my all-in-one brush. I use it for paint and for top coats as well. So it's one of my go-tos and my favorites. Thanks, Megan. We appreciate your loyalty to Zebra Paintbrushes. you say that there is a bigger learning curve with upholstering versus or reupholstering versus refinishing? That's a hard that's a hard question. A big learning a bigger learning curve. I'm not sure that it's a bigger learning curve, it's just a different one. You know, when you when you go to tackle a project like upholstery, there's a couple things you just have to know in your mind. It is here's one. It is going to take more time than you imagine, especially mm-hmm. if you're just starting out. And we can talk about what to start out with. But as far as this is concerned, it's important to realize that it's going to take more time than you know. Here's one thing different that I just thought of between, you know, refinishing, say, a washstand. That's my favorite piece to refinish as a washstand versus a a a little chair. Like I'm looking at a blog Mm -hmm. post of mine on a Victorian chair. So the two differences there is that on a piece of furniture, you could pull out the drawers, you could open the door, you could visibly see what is broken or damaged or what repairs you might have to do before you even buy the piece. Whereas Mm -hmm. with a piece of an upholstered piece, you might not be able to see all the damage at first sight. You know, once you pull off the fabric, uh, the old fabric off of an upholstered piece, you might realize that there are broken springs. And mm-hmm. you might not have realized that while you were just looking at it in order to purchase it. So that is a, that's a big difference. And I think I lost my train of thought of what the question was. Lane, I'm sorry. No, no, you're fine. I, it's, it's funny because you, you were 
you know, one of the things that I, I was thinking in terms of upholstering or reupholstering is just the word patience came to mind. And, and I don't say that, that there's no patience involved in refinishing because there is. I mean, there's a, it's a huge process. And depending on the type of piece that you're refinishing, it can take a ton of work. You know, you think about the prepping and the sanding. You know, if it's got a lot of detail, if it's got a lot of curved legs, you know, all of that work involved. But I like what you said about the upholstering because it's insightful and in that you can't see the damage until you start pulling those things apart. You start, start sort of exposing the frame of the piece by removing the fabric. But the, the key word that came into my mind was just patience, that you've got to be patient. So I would think that a lot of refinishers would make good reupholsters because I think a lot of refinishers are patient in the whole process. So, um, but, but I want to piggyback off of that and just have you give us some basic steps for entry level reupholstering, uh, as far as like what's involved and, um, and just kind of walk us th through that as best you can. I know this is difficult because we're strictly audio, but it's just, you know, as people are working and refinishing, jogging, driving, sort of walk people through kind of on a basic level what you go through when you reupholster a piece. Okay, and we'll do that with a really simple piece. We won't go through the antique, the 1920s antique settee that I reupholstered for somebody's wedding. We'll start with something simple, like a footstool or an mm -hmm. organ slash piano stool. And in fact, if anybody wanted to see samples of that, if they go to reinventeddelaware.com and on the search bar, just type in footstool or type in organ stool and you're going, going to see some posts pop up and then you'll have a visual of what I'm talking about. But let's say here an organ stool. I see a lot of organ stools that have a beautiful wood base and you can imagine that the, the seat does not have a back. It's just a flat little seat. And there's like a screw mechanism. I'm sure there's a technical word for that that makes it go higher or lower, depending mm -hmm. on the height of the person that's sitting at the organ. Well, often that seat part is upholstered. And this is one of the easiest projects to get started with. So here's how you would tackle that project. You would first off, uh, remove all of the fabric by using a tack remover. It's a little tool with, uh, let's see how to say this, little prongs that come out mm -hmm. and there's like a little wedge. So you can wedge that prong tool under the staple or under the upholstery tack and lift it up. It ha works like on a little bit of leverage. So you would mm -hmm. use your uh, tack remover to remove any old um, excuse me, tacks or staples. Mm -hmm. Let me get my words right. out here and have needle nose spring action pliers handy to help you to pull those out. Make sure that you watch where all of those tacks are going. Make sure that they land in a trash can, not on the floor because you don't want to step on these things. They're very, very dangerous. So you use the pliers and the tack remover, remove all of the old tacks and staples and then take off that fabric and you're going to see on a little seat like that, you only need a half of a yard of fabric. It's not that much fabric. And as you're taking it apart, pay attention to any folds that might be at like the corners of the, of the fabric as it goes and molds around the chair form. Pay attention to how the previous person 
attach that fabric so that you can reattach it in a similar way. The next step would be to check the batting. A lot of times the batting is still in good shape. And a lot of these older pieces, and I don't mean to freak anybody out, this is 100% okay, but a lot of the batting in these older pieces is made from horsehair. And horsehair mm-hmm. is durable. It's so durable and adds a really good cushion. What I like to do, because I like to keep the integrity of the piece as much as I possibly can while still updating it, I'll keep that if it's still in good shape and I put a new piece of batting over top of that before I put on the upholstery fabric. So you want to check that out and see if it needs to be completely replaced or just partially replaced like I just described. The next step would be to finish the wood in whatever way that you want to finish it. I really love to use milk paint and I love using zebra paint brushes. In fact, that Palm Pro is in my hand often. I love to use the <laughs> Palm Pro and I know that it might not be for small spindles and that kind of thing, but honestly, it works for me. I really love that. So you finish off the base of that with whatever preference, whether you want to go natural wood, whether you want to paint it like I love to do whatever that is, and let it dry. And then it's time to reupholster. You don't want to paint after you've got the new fabric on. You Mm -hmm. want to get that step out of the way to make sure you don't spatter. Then the next step is to just lay the piece of fabric over top and use your pneumatic staple gun and an air compressor. I have that all set up out in my garage. And you uh, add add the staples to hold the fabric. You pull the fabric taut as you're going around. And Not to go into too much detail, you can see a lot of these tutorials on my blog, and I have some YouTube videos on it as well. But you start the stapling on one side in the center, then you go to the opposite side in the center, pull it a little Mm -hmm. bit taut, and add another staple. And you kind of go back and forth and work your way around so that it's evenly pulled on all sides of this square seat on this organ stool. So that's how you do it. And then you finish it off with trim and you have a lovely uh, reupholstered uh, organ stool. Well, yeah, and I think that was very well articulated just to get the, the general steps involved. But I, I, I do want to continue to encourage folks to go to your uh, website because you do a good job of showing. Uh, and I think this is where people get a little bit worried is when you have to pull in or create pleats where it's mm-hmm. like, fabric is overlapping so how do you do that what's involved in that and i don't know just the way you show that it uh, you kind of take the worry out of it uh, it makes sense the way you kind of walk people through what's involved in that uh, so that's helpful um, you, you know you talked about some of the tools and you mentioned the pneumatic staple gun that you have which is an air-powered staple gun what if somebody you know they need a staple gun but they're not sure whether they they're going to get into this hot and heavy what do you think about just those just basic electrical staple guns? Do you think those are, are good to, to use to start out with? Because the pneumatic staple gun, the air compressor hose, the fittings, that's probably a, a little bit of an investment, I would assume. It is an investment. I kind of lucked out because my husband has an air compressor already, and it's kind of a large one. He likes to make sure he uses it for car maintenance, blowing up tires Mm -hmm. and, you know, whatever else. I don't know what else he uses it for, but he has an air compressor, so I got to piggyback off of that. So, And then the upholstery, uh, the pneumatic gun that I have was under $100, so that wasn't so bad. 
Mm. An electric staple gun is great if you have upper body strength, but that's my biggest problem. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm in another part, another era of my life and upper body strength is not something that I have. But if you have an electric staple gun and you have the upper body strength to hold that staple gun firmly onto the surface before you press it and you know that it's going to stay there, then I would say go ahead and use it. Be aware if you're not applying enough pressure on that electric staple gun, the staple will not go in all the way and you'll have to hammer it in, which damages mm-hmm. the staple. And you, that's a headache. You don't want that. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if you want to start with a staple gun and you're doing like this organ stool, you could lay the organ stool on its side, protect the surface that you've got it on, but lay it on its side. So that gravity is also helping you to really hold that, that electric staple gun steady and firmly on the surface where you want to staple. Okay. So we're talking about, uh, you know, the staple gun obviously is needed. You mentioned, I believe you called it a tack remover, mm-hmm. uh, and then the spring pliers, uh, needle nose pliers. Anything else? I mean, obviously a little, um, probably a little hammer just to, to, to gently hit some of these in if they're not going in all the way, depending on what kind of staple gun you have. Uh, are those pretty much all the tools involved? Yeah, that's pretty much it. You just need a small tack hammer. Of course, you're going to need uh, fabric and additional batting and paint and a paintbrush or however you want to finish the wood yeah. of, of your project. And that's about it. I saw too on um, your website as well, where you even make some recommendations on where to go to get some good quality fabric, and uh, so that that was helpful. Yes, I have um, I have found an Etsy shop that I love some of the fabrics that I've seen there, and I've also found some great fabrics through a a company here in the United States called Duck Canvas, and they create they make fabrics for sails like on a sailboat like those kind mm-hmm. of outdoor heavy mm-hmm. duty canvas fabrics and they make wonderful fabrics for reupholstery they're really heavy duty and fairly inexpensive yeah so again we're talking about uh, reupholstering and we're comparing it to refinishing what about with your work uh, like what do you do you find yourself doing as much reupholstering as you do refinishing no, I don't. I've done a lot more refinishing for our local customers than I have upholstery. Um, some of the upholstery projects I've had to turn down. If it has broken springs, I, I'm not going to mess with that. That's a whole other ball game, and most people could not afford what it costs to have that done. And the people here in our area, they want nice things, but they're most of them are on a budget like so many of us. So some mm-hmm. of those kind of projects have been cost prohibitive. But for the most part, the custom pieces that I've done, in fact, I did a, an antique settee. It was from the 1920s and she wanted, this girl wanted this reupholstered for her wedding. And I have a, a four part series on my blog all about that. I don't have a YouTube video on that. I was not doing it at the time, but I do have step by step over on my blog. And fortunately, when I, you know, pulled all the old fabric off, I was okay with the, the springs. I think they were all in good shape. So I was okay there, but I don't do as much upholstery as I do furniture refinishing. It's, it's, I'm not even sure why. I don't even know why th- that is, but it doesn't seem like maybe people just don't think that that's a, a thing anymore. I'm not really sure why, mm-hmm. but there's not as much of that work as there is furniture painting. 
But it, it certainly uh, obviously broadens your skill set and allows you, just as you said earlier, if you see a piece that's an upholstered piece or maybe, you know, and we'll talk about this Victorian chair you reupholstered uh, as well. But, you know, it has wood in it too. I mean, not, not just obviously it has wood frame, but it's got exposed wood. So it, it allows you to, to really, you know, to use both those skills of refinishing, reupholstering. And so that, that does broaden your, your skill set pretty well and your customer base as well, I would think. Yes, it definitely does broaden the customer base. I've had people ask me when they've seen some of the pieces, they've wanted like reupholstering on a regular sofa. When I say regular, I mean a modern day since the 80s kind of sofa. And that's not the look that I have. That That's not the kind of pieces that I do. So I've turned those down. But it has spurred on more work about that. One thing I would like to say is that if anyone is interested in re- adding reupholstered pieces to their, whether they have a vendor booth or, uh, you know, maybe they only sell on Facebook. I'm not sure how any, how everyone's selling their pieces. But if you wanted to add smaller pieces that are upholstered to your, to your, um, offerings, I would say start with a footstool or start with an organ stool. And the footstools are a dime a dozen and you can, you can really find small footstools and reupholster and refinish the wood and make a nice little profit. And people love them. We have sold so many little footstools that I never thought would even anybody would even take a second look. But as soon Mm. as you add, update the fabric and update the finish, people love them. They really are wanting to put their feet up. So I encourage everyone that's listening, if you have an opportunity to see a footstool that's upholstered, grab it and take the simple steps that I just listed out or look on my blog for some more tutorials and recover them. They're, they're super easy to do and your customers will really love them. Well, uh, one of the things that caught our eye was this Victorian chair that I mentioned earlier. I think you did it in April of this year and you show the before mm-hmm. and of course we see the after and it's, it's like amazing. And the fabric is just really, uh, I, I don't know. I would think it would be a very popular piece in demand today, uh, after what you did with it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it and just kind of give us a brief rundown of what was involved in the refinishing and reupholstering of this piece? Well, I'm glad that you brought this one up because even though it's a chair, it's relatively easy. This was an easy project and I, you're not going to believe what I paid for this. It's a 1920s, maybe even 1900 early. I paid $20 for that chair. Wow. Unbelievable. Nothing was broken. The springs were in perfect condition and it has a fun little detail. I'll try to remember to tell you that at the end, but even the fabric on it was in really good shape. And honestly, I could have just painted that fabric and it would have been really lovely. I, I kind of think that maybe I should have done that, but either way, whether I reupholstered or whether I painted that fabric, it would have been gorgeous either way. So I ripped all that fabric off and I'm looking at the post as well. And I'm showing the uh, staple remover that you use, that little tack remover. Mm -hmm. And I'm keeping track of all those little tacks. By the way, those tacks are maybe a quarter of an inch long and they're Mm -hmm. super sharp because back in the day, they didn't have staple guns and they used those little tacks and a tack hammer to uh, to tack in each little, each little 
tech and they're very, very sharp. Do not step on them. Keep your kids and pets away. Seriously. I removed all that fabric and I'm looking at the next photo and it shows the batting. The batting on this chair was in pristine condition. I don't know that this chair was ever even used to tell you the truth. I think I might've added, let's see, did I add a layer? I can't remember if I added another layer. I think I added a thin layer of cotton batting just to freshen it up. I refinished the wood part of it, which was in really good shape. I just use a uh, a little product. Uh, you'll see it there on the blog that I used on the wood and that really cleaned it up nicely. And then I just reupholstered the seating just basically like I, how I just described how to do an organ stool. It's just mm-hmm. that it wasn't a square seat. It was kind of a round seat with little curves to go around. And it's, it's not as hard as people think. People look at that and they think, oh, there's just no way. But like I said, if you take that piece of upholstered furniture apart and pay attention to how you're taking it apart. And then nowadays you can take a video of it or you can take yeah. photos along the process as you take it apart. And then that's your reference to go back to it. It's really not as hard as people think. You, you do need patience, like you said at the beginning. And before you know it, you have, you know, a 1920s restored Victorian chair with adorable farmhouse style fa- upholstery fabric that I found on Etsy. Now, the fun thing I wanted to say about this particular chair, and I'm looking at it right now, somebody along the way repaired the caster wheels. So there are two caster wheels on the front of this chair which is interesting that they're not on all four legs or just on the front yeah. two, I guess, to make it easy <laughs> to move around. Both of those casters are porcelain, and one is black and one is white. And I don't know which is the oldest, but somebody replaced that caster. I love that. Like, even back in the day, they saw the value of keeping what you already have and fixing yeah. it up and continuing to use it. Don't just trash it because you're missing a caster. Just go find another caster and stick it on there. <laughs> yeah, no, that is cool. Uh, you know, what you were talking about, this is a rather simple piece to do. And I'm glad you said that because I would have thought, based on just looking at it, that it would have been pretty complex with those curves on the seat uh, and how the frame kind of goes up and back down. And and then I would think it would be a little bit because it's got the um, – it's just slipped my mind. What do they call that pattern? It's like a um, grain sack grain pattern, sack. I guess. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that you've got to make sure you line that up correctly because you've got the back and then you've got the seat. And mm-hmm. it looks like uh, from what I can see from these pictures that you did an excellent job in making sure those line up well. So I guess it takes a little bit of time. But it sounds to me like the key in all of this, and you've sort of reiterated this, is when you're taking it apart, as you said, paying attention, but also trying to maintain the fabric, not because you're going to save it, but because it already has the pattern that uh, maybe the cut pattern that you can potentially use to lay over your new fabric. Is that, would you, did I assess that correctly? Let me explain that a little bit differently. When you take off the old fabric, yes, pay attention to how it was attached and keep that piece of old fabric as a guideline to cut your new, but you're, it's not going to be an exact pattern. In other words, the piece that you're looking at with that seat, it's kind of was rounded and had some curved edges and I laid it onto my new fabric, but I did not cut out those same lines. I cut out 
a big square mm-hmm. from my fabric to go beyond the size of the old piece that I took off. Then I took that square and it was blessed to have those lines because it actually helps you to know that you're putting the fabric on straight. And there on the front of that chair, I put the lines in the center of the chair, of the frame of that chair with the excess hanging over the wood. And I stapled Mm -hmm. it along. There's a groove that where the upholstery is attached. And as your readers find a piece, they'll see that groove, especially if you pay attention to how that piece was applied in the first place. And then you just staple in the center right along that groove and you have all this excess. And when all of the stapling is done all the way around the piece, you take scissors and you cut around those curves and edges and all the shape that you see. That's how you get the shape. Okay, so that's why you shouldn't cut exactly, because otherwise you're not going to have any uh, wiggle room, <laughs> if you will. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you staple it all on first, and then you cut it off. Have you ever had a situation where, you know, once you remove all of those old existing staples or tacks, that the wood needs Bondo to give it some strength so that when you put your new staples in, that there's something for it to you know, grab onto. Is that ever an issue? Yes. We had a piece with the antique settee that I mentioned, and it was from the early 1900s and is a similar style as the chair that we're, that we're talking about. There were several sections on that piece that were too damaged and I would not be able to run another row of staples there. So we cut out that piece, that section, and my husband would replace it with an actual piece of wood there just to make sure that we had a good secure spot. Now that was for larger sections. When I say larger, I mean three inches. Mm-hmm. If it's a small area, then yes, I, I, I've not used Bondo in a, in a, in a, for a reason like that, but I'm pretty sure that it would work. Maybe test that out to be sure. Do you have, um, or have you in the past ever reupholstered a piece of furniture that was all fabric? Yes, I have. And that is more challenging. You really do have to use an awful lot of fabric to, to do that. For instance, a sofa, I reupholstered a sofa one time and I think I bought 20 yards of fabric because a sofa, a modern day sofa, mm-hmm. the arms are covered, the back is covered. You've got three cushions on the seat. You've got three cushions on the back. I think I was upwards of at least 20 yards of fabric on that and every bit of it. That's a lot of work. And I I know this is getting in depth by going in this direction and I don't want to hang out here long because I know it's difficult with audio, but I do want to ask if you're, if you do take on something like a sofa, is there, do you typically do a section at a time as far as removing the old fabric then putting on the new, or do you take it all off, label it? What's just as a quick rundown, what, what do you, what's the process for that? Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. Yes, you would remove all of the cushions and you don't have to deal with those right away. And you would just work on the deck of the sofa. The deck is the, the area where the seat cushions go mm-hmm. and then the back of, back of the sofa. And then, um, the very back of the sofa that just, you know, that would go up against a wall that back because right. you have an outside back and you have an inside back and then the arms, you have an inside arm and an outside arm. And yes, you would label all those pieces so that you, and I keep all those pieces until it's finished just to be 
overly cautious. And then there's a step-by-step process of what parts you would start to attach first. You would attach the decking, then you would attach the inside arm, then the inside back. And there's a whole process. It's pretty lengthy. Well, Lane, I also wanted to say that if anyone has any questions about reupholstering, feel free to contact me. You can email me. You can find that contact form on my site at reinventeddelaware.com. You could Instagram DM me and ask me a question. I'd love to help you out the best I can. Well, Cindy, you've given us a lot of tips and tricks already, but I do want to ask you as we kind of close this particular show, is there anything that you haven't mentioned that that really sticks out in your mind that you want to just let people know that this is a tip that you want to think about or a trick that you've learned that you haven't already shared? Well, I have not shared. I did say to be prepared for this to take time. Like this is going to take more time than you thought, especially if you're just starting out. I would also recommend that you order more fabric than you think you need because you might make a mistake and you want to have enough fabric. (laughs) And honestly, if you have fabric left over, it takes hardly any fabric to recover a footstool. So don't worry about having too much fabric. Be more concerned about not having enough and order more than you need. And I would say the last thing is to find a good podcast to listen to and be prepared to binge listen to that podcast while you work on this project, because it's going to keep your mind busy and occupied while you're doing some of the mindless tasks, like removing the tax from all of this upholstery. There are thousands, it feels like thousands of tax in some of these pieces and you it's mindless work. You need to have something to have your mind on. So I recommend a podcast or maybe a good audio book and just listen away. Yeah, for sure. And I'll put a plug in here for this podcast because we are, I believe this podcast is episode 192. So we are very quickly approaching 200 episodes. So I think we've got enough in the bank that you could listen to several episodes as you're removing those tacks and staples and going through the whole refinishing, reupholstering process for sure. (laughs) Well, Cindy, it's always great to stretch our skills and to add additional talents to mix and refinishing into reupholstering. You've done a great job articulating all the nuances of reupholstering, and I feel sure you have inspired many to give it a go. Friends, as mentioned earlier, Cindy's IG account is Reinvented Delaware, and her website is reinventeddelaware.com. She has, as she has mentioned as well, wonderful step-by-step tutorials as well as YouTube tutorials. So, Take the time to go out there, especially if you're interested in exploring uh, reupholstering. You will not find uh, it disappointing at all. There's tons of information out there. So, well, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on, Cindy, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Are you going to be reupholstering or refinishing? Um, today, what is that? I am actually upcycling a uh, thrift store wreath for fall. So I'm doing a little bit different today. (laughs) And I'm sure you'll feature that on your IG account. I'm hoping to, yes. (laughs) All right. Well, go enjoy that upcycling. Have a good day. You too, Lane. Bye-bye. Today's refinishing tip comes from Shelly with Cedar and Sage Furniture. 
Hi, Lane. Thank you so much for having me on this week. I'm Shelly from Cedar and Sage Furniture. I just wanted to share a refinishing tip on how to get super crisp lines when you're painting. Have you ever been super frustrated when you get your tape just perfect and then you go to peel it off and it has bled through everywhere? Well, I learned a tip from another refinisher when I had first started and it has saved me since. Place your tape just like you would. Get it straight. Make sure it's all nice. And then take your zebra brush and brush a clear coat right over your line and on the tape. This will create a barrier. And one or two coats is fine and any clear coat at all will work. Then when you are completely done painting, you're on your last coat. That's when you want to peel off your tape when it's still a little wet and not completely dry. This will help it from pulling up at all. And then voila, super crisp lines every single time. Again, I'm Shelly. I'm from Cedar and Sage Furniture. And you can find me on Instagram, Cedar and Sage underscore furniture, and Facebook, Cedar and Sage Furniture. I hope everyone has a great week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you, Shelly. Taping can be challenging when you are trying to achieve those straight lines, so this tip makes it a breeze now. Today's question of the week is what refinishing incident made you almost quit? I think everyone has been there, right? And there is something rather comforting when you realize you aren't the only one who has been at the end of the rope, but ultimately didn't give up. Hello, I'm Mary from Hello Mrs. P, and my Instagram is at Hello Mrs. P. The incident that almost makes me wish to quit is one that recurs. It's being lowballed on my pieces. Sometimes customers don't see that I have purchased, cleaned, repaired, sanded, and painted with top quality paint and the very best brushes. Sometimes customers do not realize or appreciate the amount of time, work, and expertise put into beautifully hand-painted furniture. Hi, this is Joey Coop from at Recouped on Instagram. An incident that almost made me want to quit was with an antique buffet that I found on the side of the road recently. I chose to remove the veneer off the top because it had a lot of damage. My hope was that after removing the veneer, I would be able to restore the wood underneath. Unfortunately, things did not go as planned. The wood underneath was not pretty. I damaged it while removing the veneer, and I had to end up making just as many repairs as I would have if I would have just left it on and fixed it. I wasted a lot of time and energy for the same outcome and ended up having to paint too, which is okay, but it just wasn't what I had envisioned. I'm very happy with the results, but in the future, I will definitely think twice before doing that again. Hi everyone, this is Shay in Louisville, Kentucky, and my Instagram is at allthingsmadenew underscore L-O-U. Well, I wouldn't say that I was ready to quit refinishing altogether, but I was definitely ready to quit on this particular piece. It was an old MCM dresser with red stained mahogany veneer, and I had given it a coastal modern look and had sanded and bleached the drawer fronts and painted the entire body in a coastal blue. And then one morning, after letting the final coat of poly dry overnight, I came to find red stain bleed through everywhere. I was exhausted and devastated and just wanted to set it on fire. But in the end, I painted it jet black and called it a day, and it turned out to be stunning and sold to the first friend of mine that I sent a sneak peek photo to. Hi, I'm Veronica from Vintage by Veronica. 
The incident that made me almost quit was on the eve of returning the most beautiful antique credenza that I refinished for a returning client. At midnight that night, my husband decided to roll my air compressor right back into my workshop and right smack into the dolly where this piece sat. So long story short, I had to call my client and explain to her, my husband will be sleeping in the guest bedroom tonight. Her response was, honey, my husband has slept in a minivan before. Thanks for the heads up. Thanks, Mary, Joey, Shay, and Veronica for sharing. If you have a question you would like asked among your refinishing peers, send me an email at laneandjoyzebra.com. If we answer your question on the podcast, you'll receive a free zebra paintbrush. As we mentioned last month, some exciting changes have taken place with our monthly furniture refinishing contest, The Zebra Review. We have moved away from the monthly themes to highlighting a monthly furniture category like buffets, hutches, nightstands, tables, and we are broadening the opportunity for refinishers to enter the appropriate category by allowing you to enter pieces all the way back to the beginning of the year. Last month's category was desks, and this month's focus will be chests cedar chest and blanket boxes that is and that of course is in celebration of the weather changes from warm to cooler days and that means for many of you bringing out the sweaters a few other changes we wanted to make you aware of each month one of our four judges katie cloud with katie and company katie scott with salvage by k scott lauren schwachino with portland rose studio and jen tally with perfectly imperfect furniture will be the featured judge the featured judge will choose their favorites from the contest and the remaining judges will select the first, second, and third place winners from those favorites. The featured judge will also join me on the podcast to interview the three winners each month. And this month's featured judge is Katie Scott. Okay, this is very important. In order to enter your refinished chest, you must use the hashtag Zebra Chests. This will change each month, of course, depending on the category. One really cool element to this new direction is that you'll be able to peruse the specific hashtags for a specific style and be inspired. And we think that's kind of cool. A huge thank you to this month's sponsors, Surf Prep Sanding, D. Lawless Hardware, Shecto Interiors Milk Paint, and Zebra Paintbrushes. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to any of the judges or send me an email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Zebras Before and After Furniture Refinishing Podcast. Today's episode, along with information about today's guest, is also featured on enjoyzebra.com under the podcast tab at the bottom. Your comments and suggestions for future episodes are always welcome, and we encourage you to share them by sending your emails to me at laneball at enjoyzebra.com. Thanks for listening, stay safe, and happy refinishing.